The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we have been um, rather bantied about... (laughs) Uh, with all of the things going on in the world, from natural disasters to human-made disasters, um, hurricanes, floods, fires, uh, we have all over, you know, from, from Puerto Rico to Northern California to um, Texas to all kinds of places in between, earthquakes, in Mexico, all over the world, there seem to be an increasing number, actually, of natural disasters. At the same time, that there's an increasing number, or so it seems, of human disasters, human-made disasters, notably in regard to terrorism, uh, real terrorism, and then in regard to people who have created terror in us, but who weren't radical Islamist terrorists. Um, of course, the latest such example is Devin Patrick Kelly, who is the Texas church shooter. So I thought today we would talk about um, two very different men. Devin Patrick Kelly, of course, was a very violent man. He caused uh, many deaths and injuries. 26 people died and um, he and 20 people were injured in addition to that. Um, and, and, of course, we just recently had the Halloween shooter. The, I'm sorry, not a shooter. <laughs> it's hard to keep them straight. The Halloween terror, real terrorist who drove his ch- truck into um, b- bicyclists and uh, pedestrians and a school bus. And then, of course, before that, there was the Vegas shooter that I have talked about on this show. So um, what's a person to do, right? Especially with this last uh, tragedy. I mean, think about it. If you're not safe in church in a small town in America, you know, people like the London mayor says, well, what do you expect in a big city like London? There are going to be terrorist attacks which, of course, I totally disagree with. We should not come to accept that, that because we live in a big city, there are going to be terrorist attacks. But, um, but he's saying that. But here these people sitting in the church were, um, were not in a big city, a very small city, um, and 30 miles east of the city of San Antonio, 
It was the first Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, when on November 5th of this year, a man named Devin Patrick Kelly came in and shot up the place. Now, um, <laughs> I mean, that has, even if, you know, regardless of what religion you believe in, regardless of where you live, I mean, just that concept, you know, if you, like, it seems idyllic, right? Sitting in a sweet little church in the middle of a sweet little town, <laughs> and, and they weren't even safe there. You know, it's one thing, again, not that we should accept having terror attacks in big cities, but certainly the terror attack in New York at Halloween was very near ground zero, which, of course, he chose to do, um, to remind us all of 9-11. But there's just, you know, there's just something that really uh, tears at the fabric of us as Americans to think that sitting in this sweet little church, as I put it, in this sweet little town, that we could suddenly, our our reality, our life, could suddenly be interrupted, if not um, ended, by some man who uh, decided that he was angry and he wanted to get revenge. Now, I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to do a little bit of a psychological autopsy on Devin Patrick Kelly meaning that I'm going to um, put him on my couch and explain why he did what he did. Now, he's a man who um, was, you know, this was long in coming. I mean, it's amazing, even though uh, he was only, let's see, he was, 20, he was 29, I believe. Um, getting there. He was in his 20s, and... Um, and he, you know, his, oh, yes, he, he was 26, 26 years old, um, 26. And he, you know, but this was, I mean, you know, he wasn't old, but this was long in coming. Ever since childhood, there were signs that he was a very disturbed young man. And what's really interesting um, is these interviews that they've been doing with former classmates of his who attended middle and high school with him. So they said things like they remembered him as being heavily medicated and someone who kept to himself. Um, They said his parents had him on high doses of psych meds from 6th to ninth grade. Now, why, if you have your child on psych meds from 6th to ninth grade, would you think that he was cured in ninth grade, or did he just get big enough that he could refuse to continue to see a psychiatrist and you were scared of him? Um, I mean, that's where one of the times that the ball was dropped. Uh, he should, obviously, he needed to continue in therapy, needed to continue to take medication, and, uh, but not just medication, to also be in therapy to figure out what was bugging him or what was wrong with him. And actually, um, there is, you know, some people talked about how he had <clears throat> some kind of mental illness, which presumably he did if he was taking psychiatric medication. Um, he, there were people, no, one person said, uh, a girl, Courtney, she said she was his best friend for a number of years. I was his best friend for a number of years, and he was a happy, caring person back then. It's crazy what time and mental illness can do to you. And, um, the, apparently his friends knew, some of his friends knew, that he had a very volatile relationship with his parents. Uh, especially with his dad. 
And um, one student who used to be a friend of his said he watched him verbally abuse his parents. Somebody else said um, that Kelly was a member of the high school football team and his father would, quote, go crazy if Kelly messed up on the field. So, you know, here we have a a volatile childhood, especially problems with his father, uh, some history of mental psychiatric medication, treatment, and, and likelihood of his having some kind of mental illness that then apparently went untreated. Um, he has a whole long history of, uh, that showed how the anger that he apparently started in him since childhood was festering and getting worse. So, for example, he was um, arrested for having been cruel to his dog. He had uh, a puppy who he beat up. And um, cruelty to animals is a sign of, psycho, psych, of psychopathy, that someone is going to grow up to be a psychopath, uh, which is also another name for that is a sociopath. Now, um, you know, and, and he got kind of basically got a slap on the wrist for that. He was um, given probation and so on, and, but not really put in jail for any period of time. Um, he also went into the Air Force, and he was put in the, he, while he was in the Air Force, he um, got married, or, well, he, he, um, let me just see this, he got married in April 2011 and divorced in October 2012, and in November of 2012, he was convicted by a court-martial in the Air Force due to the assault that he made on his wife and his stepson. He beat her, and he fractured his stepson's skull, and they sentenced him to 12 months of confinement. They reduced his rank, and then he was given a bad conduct discharged. Now, um, you know, his wife divorced him. His first wife divorced him, after he beat her up, which was a good thing to do. Uh, he got married again, however. It always, you know, you, you wonder how these kinds of men manage to find someone to marry them. Um, and he, he, but at the time, but, but then he, he and his wife, his, current, his second wife, became estranged. And at the time of this incident, when he went to the church and shot up the church, he was living in a converted barn at his parents' home. So um, he married this second wife in 2014, and he moved into a mobile home in Colorado, and that's where he had this cruelty to animals charge. And by the way, they do know, there are studies that have shown, not surprisingly, that um, when you are not only is cruelty to animals a sign of your uh, underlying psychopathy, but it is also a predictor of domestic violence. So, you know, he was following, here he was following this path um, of, you know, of of domestic violence, cruelty to animals, uh, history of of psychiatric treatment when he was younger, and yet somehow he was, no one was stopping this runaway train. Now, what's 
of course, seems to be the reason for why he chose the First Baptist Church was um, for his shooting, mass shooting. He, it was because her parents, his second wife's family, sometimes uh, attended the church, and she sometimes attended this church with her family. And before he, the shooting, he sent threatening text messages to his mother-in-law. Now, as it turned out, neither his wife, his second wife, nor his mother-in-law were at the church that day. But um, her mother, the, the mother-in-law's mother, um, was at the church, and she was killed. So clearly this was a, he planned this as a revenge shooting. There's also a history that he had of, um, like, he had gone to a different First Baptist church, and then and he had even um, volunteered for uh, to take part in a day of vacation Bible school, and but then he sort of something happened, and he um, started talking about how people who believe in God, God are stupid, so he turned against God and the pe- people who go to church as well. So this was a guy who was very angry and, and a, um, uh, a, an accident waiting to happen or a mass shooting waiting to happen, unfortunately not stopped along the way. He even posted a, something on his Facebook, which was a warning. But again, people are like, you know, people walk around in their own little world oblivious to these things. Now, I know we don't like to think... Of, we don't like to think of um, of uh, people, you know, having to worry about whether somebody we know is going to commit a mass shooting. But he put on his Facebook account, um, he posted a picture of a rifle, and he wrote on it, "She's a bad bitch." Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, "Payback's a bitch." So clearly, he was. Um, giving voice to his his plans, maybe unconsciously, but he was warning everyone again, maybe unconsciously, that um, he, he was intent on payback, that he wanted revenge. He was angry at the whole world, and he took it out. You know, on, he chose this church because the the most significant or the most recent person he was angry at was his second wife. And um, I guess they became estranged before she allowed him to beat him, her up, although he might have been doing that. We just don't know about that yet. Um, in any case, he decided to take things out on her a different way, not just by beating her up, but um, by shooting up the church where she might be and her family might be. Now... <laughs> You know, what are we supposed to do with all of these disasters, these, these natural disasters, these uh, man-made disasters that seem to be coming at us with ever-increasing fury? And what we need to do is, you know, not uh, what I think some of us would like to do would be to, to curl up in bed um, <laughs> under the covers and just never come out and um, keep the covers over our head and not have to worry about these things. But obviously we cannot and should not uh, do that. That's not living. But at the same time, we do have to do things that um, 
allow us to grow stronger psychologically and physically. You may have heard me talk about this in regard to terrorism. Um, And it it certainly is in regard to children as well. In my latest book that just came out, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror, I give parents and teachers the tools to talk to their kids about terrorism, just like uh, in regard to the, the attack that happened on Halloween, how important it is to talk to kids about it in words that won't make them terribly frightened, but also that aren't lies, that aren't saying some man uh, got into an accident and so he accidentally killed people along the street in uh, Manhattan because that's not what happened. And kids watch television and look at the Internet and hear radio, and they know that that's not what happened, but they're also given the message by their parents and their teachers not to ask. Don't ask about this. We don't want to talk about this. Because, um, because you know, grown-ups, um, typically well-meaning, often well-meaning, but not really knowing what to say and not wanting to scare kids. But the problem is that terrorism... Um, isn't going away, um, and nor are people like the man who shot up the church. And um, but that you know it's easier actually to sort of uh, I mean you know you need to kind of assume that kids have seen that on television as well. But one time kinds of things when people are uh, have some kind of mental illness and take out their rage on the world in some kind of ferocious, atrocious, a combination of horrific and atrocious, ferocious, new word, ferocious act, um, like the man in Vegas, the mass shooting that he created, uh, you know, at least those kinds of things, as ferocious as they are, they are one-time kinds of things. They are things, one time in the sense that this particular person um, with this particular mental illness or this particular mental problem uh, did this attack because he was mad at the world or mad at certain people in the world. But though that isn't quite as scary as terrorists and terrorism because um, even though, like for example in New York, yes, that was one man and he, you know, he, he killed people, he injured people, he terrified people, and, um, and it was horrible. And, and yet now it's like uh, <laughs> down in the news, not on the top of the news. It's so quickly, so quickly people want to forget and deny these things. Um, but but um, it's not only, he didn't only represent him. I mean, he is... Um, He's in the hospital, he's injured, he, and he is going to be punished. He is most likely never going to be able to see the light of day again outside of a jail. So um, that is something that you can talk to kids about, how um, these bad men, terrorists, and I talk about terrorists in my book, like uh, being a bully, like, like a bully on the playground, and I talk about what terrorism is and um, in a way that kids can understand and so on. And but see, so it's not just the guy who that particular man um, who um, who Saipov who did this 
uh, attack, but it's that he represents an endless stream of people who believe the same way he does and who are continuing to plan attacks on America. And so... um, so that's why that is a little scarier because it's not just uh, it's not just this one man who um, was angry and had mental problems. It's that he represents a whole um, endless stream of people who are like him, and that's that's why it's scarier. But that's why also you need to explain this to children because it's not going to be the only one. It's not going to be the only time. And um, they need to have an understanding of what, why people do this, why terrorists do this, and they need to know what they should do to make themselves stronger. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, uh, how they should run and hide. I'm talking, although, of course, that's useful to talk about too, but I'm talking about how they can build themselves up uh, so that when the next terror attack happens... They are psychologically and physically ready for it, psychologically to withstand the fear that it will bring, and physically to withstand the stress that I call terrorist stress uh, syndrome, so that they can withstand that as well and um, be able to continue with their life with, um, without being as affected as if they didn't know what was going on and how, you know, and why people were doing this and why their parents and their teachers weren't talking to them about it. So all of these things, and of course natural disasters too, you know, there's no, I mean, there are things that one can do to, um, to prepare for a natural disaster. Uh, of course, getting oneself physically and, and, and psychologically stronger are also important. But of course, then you can engage children in, uh, things like clearing the brush off your land, you know, so that things like what happened in Northern California are less likely to happen. And there are things that you can do with kids as well that I write about in my book um, uh, to get them prepared, specific kinds of things that you can do. So, so the thing is, natural disasters... Uh, people disasters are not going away and that we can't change the world uh, other than our own little world as far as trying to, you know, take tangible steps to prevent these atrocities from happening to us. But what we can change is, is who we are in terms of making ourselves every day just a little bit stronger to withstand stress um, physically and psychologically. Well, my next, during the, the second half hour, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing um, a man who is kind, who had sort of a similar beginning, not necessarily with mental illness, but a similar beginning in terms of having had a troubled childhood, but he turned out completely different. Um, he, he became a scientist and a writer of, um, a writer of a science fiction book and an advisor to presidents, and so on. And so there are, people can turn their lives around when they are troubled children, as children. It doesn't mean that they are going to end up as the man who shot up the church in Texas. Um, There is still the possibility 
of um, turning one's life around and heading in a much more positive direction. And the key to this oftentimes is in the people who surround the child uh, and how much encouragement and help they give them. And obviously, um, the man who shut up the church doesn't seem to have had any mentors around him, any people who could have uh, helped him, um, although he, you know, I guess he did have a chance when he was in therapy, but for whatever reason, that didn't continue. That was, that was the real turning point in his life in ninth grade when, um, when, his, when his parents didn't, didn't make him continue with treatment, when the psychiatrist didn't uh, hospitalize him against his will. I mean, he surely he must have seen violent tendencies in him, um, unless it was just a psychiatrist who was seeing people for medication <laughs> for 15 minutes or something at a time, which is possible. Uh, but that was where, that was the turning point. That was where if someone had intervened at that point and uh, continued, made him continue in therapy um, and to take medication and so on, that would have, back, way back then, ninth grade, that would have prevented what we have here uh, just <laughs> this past week in the horrendous mass shooting in the church. So it's those kinds of things, you know, when you fight fate or life or um, if you think back at your own life, think of, you know, things that happened that seemed sort of innocuous at the time uh, or people you met that where it didn't seem like that person was going to change your life, but it turned out later on you can look back and see how it did change your life. Um, you know, how that puts you in a different situation where then something else happened, which then changed you in another way. I mean, these little steps, step by step, um, can have, when you, when you stand back and look at, at uh, what enormous impacts, each of these little things, like in any day, you know, if you, <laughs> if you cross the street, um, you could come across a person that could, could change your life or you could, you know... <laughs> Just, just any little tiny move that you make. I mean, even the simplest thing, the simplest little tragedy, like uh, driving along the road and you get hit by another car. Uh, if you had left home five minutes later or five minutes earlier, that wouldn't have happened. So there are these kinds of things happening, not all of them horrendous, some of them wonderful, but these kinds of little things that you don't pay attention to, but then looking back, you can see how they totally changed your life. Well, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Kingston-Levin and, um, and hear how his childhood, troubled childhood, could have ended in a very different way, but um, it ended with a lot of uh, successes, including his new um, science fiction book that we'll hear about as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the 
experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about two men with troubled childhoods who came out very differently. Um, We talked about the man who shot up the uh, church in Texas who had a troubled childhood and um, caused trouble for many people throughout his life and specifically or most uh, troubling with his um, mass shooting. Now we have uh, someone else who had a troubled childhood, another man, Dr. Mark Kingston Levin, who is going to tell us about his troubled childhood, but he uh, turned out uh, 180 degrees differently. He um, got a Ph.D. He was uh, employed by Boeing on Project Apollo. He later worked on the Mars Project. He studied under Nobel laureates. Um, He founded companies. He became incredibly successful financially. Uh, he, be- he was a, s- a science advisor to President Ford. Um, he worked with Jacques Cousteau. Um, he-, he has a, um, he's invented products that, um, that, I <laughs> that are beyond my comprehension in physics and, and uh, uh, science. But now he has turned to, he's taken his background in science uh, and turned to writing science fiction. And um, a novel, a 30th century novel. So we will hear about that, but we'll first hear about his childhood and how, how he went from, um, from going, starting to go down the wrong path to uh, where I just told you about now. 
So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much, Dr. Lieberman. Uh, I'm very pleased to be on the show. Um, yes, I did start out uh, as a really bad kid, I guess. That's what my mother tells me. Um, but I do know I had a lot of problems as a child. I ran away a lot. I went Even when I, before my father died, when he was sick, I guess I didn't get enough attention from my mother because uh, she had my brother and my father to take care of. Uh-huh. Uh, he was sick with a heart condition. Uh, I was about four or five years old, and of course I didn't understand that. And I don't remember running away, but I've been told this is what I did. And fortunately, we lived on a small island uh, during the wintertime in Florida, uh, off of Tampa Bay, one of the barrier islands called uh-huh. Paso Grill. It's very populated today, but when I was a kid, it wasn't. And, um, uh, and I, of course, I grew up in Vermont uh, during the summer and fall months. And um, um, my father was a doctor, so I kind of a little bit with a kind of golden uh, silver spoon in my mouth, but uh, because my father was fairly well to do. However, uh, he got sick. He had to spend his money and his health conditions and issues. And um, we um, went from um, being very wealthy to eventually being uh, relatively poor because my father died when I was six years old in 1947. Uh-huh. And um, my mother was left pretty much alone. And um, she, you know, worked at a hospital, but, you know, she wasn't making very much money. Uh, she did have a college education, but, you know, just there wasn't a high-paying job available uh-huh. at the time. And uh, so we, we struggled a little bit. We took in, she took in boarders at the house. You know, she had a house, took in boarders, and, and, and things were kind of rough. But, um, you know, I um, had a little uh, brother who I used to fight with a lot. And um, finally I won. You know, at the beginning he won. But by the time I got about eight years old, my um, skills Apparently, I was very. I fought a lot of other kids because uh-huh. um, I had a lot of hostility. I kind of felt that my father's death. He, how dare he die and leave me alone? Uh-huh. So I was very. I had tremendous hostility, and it wouldn't take That's very much. That's a very much natural to, reaction. Go ahead, feeling yeah. abandoned and angry, and especially how that changed your life so much. Yeah. So. I got in a lot of fights, and I'm just glad I didn't really permanently hurt anybody because I won a lot of the fights. Uh-huh. Some I lost, where two or three kids got up and, and, and beat me up. So I had a tremendous amount of hostility. I would fly off the handle, and I couldn't control it at that age. could not control my emotions and anger. And um, when I was you know, getting to be a young teenager like... 12 years old, I tried out for football, and um, fortunately, I had a coach who saw how angry I was, because I wouldn't fight with the other players, and he got me into his office, and he said, you're going to have to change your ways. You can knock those guys around with your shoulder pads, but not with your fists. Mm. One more time, and you are out. So I listened very carefully, 
because I I just had some kind of respect for him. He was um, half black and he had played professional football, mm-hmm. and he was was um, very soft spoken, unusually soft spoken. So I had to listen very carefully. I wouldn't hear him. Uh-huh. And um, then, yes, and then uh, uh, he he kind of converted me. He made me work out like two hours in the morning to get rid of all this hostility and all this energy. You lift weights, so he put this into me, and then run in the afternoon, and then play football practice. And so I so I did that, and I you know I got a lot stronger uh, by lifting all these weights, and I got big muscles and. And I played football, and I became a running back, and I was the star player of the team. And I, you know, I moved on, um, but I was able to control. After w- working out real hard, I was able to gather control where I wouldn't hit anybody again. Yeah, in mm-hmm. fact, I, I I may have hit one or two people, but they hit me first, so I never did through the first punch. Um, but uh, that and was, and uh, wait, let me just. And another reason why you were angry um, before we get too far into the story was about the uh, the man that your mother married, your stepfather. Yes. Yeah, he turned out to be an alcoholic, and it was disastrous for me. He used to beat me. So I had more hostility. And um, he used to beat me with a book on the butt. Told hmm. me to lie down, and I would, and he would whacked that book and it was a big book like an encyclopedia wow (laughs) now that's interesting (laughs) (laughs) do you think that might explain um, uh, why when you why you now wrote your own book (laughs) maybe my mother was a writer she's a poet Uh, very quiet um very non-athletic, very different from my grandmother. My grandmother was a journalist and later became the editor of Vermont Life magazine. She retired at 89 to write her memoirs. Um, But um, I'm not sure. Uh, They both influenced me. Um, Also, my brother is a writer. He's a famous Mm. writer, best-selling author, uh, wrote something like uh, called the... uh, my favorite is the uh, Prince of Nantucket. And uh, so he inspired me actually to write hmm. uh, because I read his stuff and I really liked it. But the person who inspired, inspired me most in science um, was a, uh, Paul Adrian Morris Dirac. And he's a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, he got his Nobel Prize from quantum mechanics, and he predicted antimatter. And um, he is probably in the same level as Einstein, maybe, you know, a few few down. There may be a couple of other uh, physicists like Newton and uh, Fermi and um, that were of significant, uh, equal, significantly equal to the to the others. And but well, and before and before on, that. You, um, you you had a science teacher who asked you if you wanted to join the Rocket Club, and that's what started you on the path to science. That's what did it, yeah. Because once I got in that club, they, uh, they asked people to do different things. They said, well, why don't you work on the rocket fuel? we got nobody doing that. Come up with uh, something. So 
you know, I first had to read a lot of books to understand uh-huh. what the heck rocket fuel was and how it worked. And uh, so I did that. And um, then when I got into um, uh, school, I, I did really well in chemistry because, you know, making rocket fuel, solid fuel rockets particularly, it's chemistry. And uh, so, uh, liquid rockets is more combustion, but still physics and chemistry combined. You have two factors, uh, the physics of mixing and uh, the combustion, and then the chemistry of the combustion and the energy that comes off. And but, but it's more physical chemistry, I guess. And so I worked um, on Apollo. I worked on the liquid engines. And uh, later I worked on the Mars program where there were some solid fuel rockets, particularly um, nuclear rocket. Uh, I, it was actually fired at Jackass Flats in Nevada. Uh, we never got it off the ground because it had to be launched in space. And they canceled the Mars program about 19... 19- 67, somewhere around that time, and uh, oh, maybe it was 68. Uh, I went back to school. And I, um, I, I left my uh, job on the Mars program went back to school to get my PhD because I had heard that Dirac was coming. It was going to be at the Center for Theoretical Studies. And, so uh, of course, how did means, all of yeah. your experiences... Um, uh, <sighs> How did all your experiences in science ultimately lead you to writing this, your first in a trilogy um, of science fiction books called 30th Century? Well, Dirac was my inspiration because we worked together in the early 1980s. We collaborated on um, cosmology, and he was looking at different things, questioning everything, uh, something just didn't add up because the universe expansion um, wasn't, was not well understood and it should have slowed down. But actually in the 1990s, uh, that was after Dirac passed away, um, Hubble determined that the universe and others' experiments, the universe was expanding at an accelerating rate and there was nothing to explain that, so they called it dark energy. And if you use E equals MC squared, Einstein's relation from mass to energy, you learn that dark energy is 70% of the universe. Dark matter is 25% of the universe. What we see and what we feel, all that's part of us and around us, like the stars and the black holes and all of that, is only 4% of the universe. Okay, well, let's so get to your, I, to your science fiction book. So how did you get sure. from, I mean, so is, this, are, is it that you wanted to answer some of these questions? Um, yes. You know, wanted to go into fantasy to answer some of these questions that have not been answered? Yes. Uh, I, I developed a, a theory. It's based on several hypotheses. It's not proven by any means. Um, it's still probably, I would say, the hypothesis phase because it's very difficult to test cosmological things. So I got interested in cosmology, and then I got interested in the future, and I've always loved science fiction. So, uh, and, and I like other fiction, too, but uh, I, I just felt that was a natural thing for me, and it, it felt good. I enjoyed writing. Once I got started, I couldn't stop. I worked at it all the time. 
And I actually, in about two years, I wrote three books and uh, made it into a trilogy. And the first book is out, but the other two are still to be out, mainly because i got to get the artwork done for the covers and the illustrations. Um, so, in other words, I'm, you were able to resolve in these science fiction books um, things that could not yet be resolved or proven, anyway, in, in real science. Right. Exactly. I was able to project how they will be resolved in the future and uh, how time travel can be possible. It, it'll still, be interesting. It would be interesting. Yeah. It will be interesting if somehow in the future um, people can look back at what you wrote and see that actually you predicted these things. Right. Like Jules Verne's had the uh-huh. uh, nuclear submarine. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't really nuclear, but in his day it was another method. But the overall image of what it was, never, some of the details weren't right, but uh, his science was pretty good. He could foresee it. In other words, he was a visionary. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I can be compared to Jules Verne's, but I'm trying to look into the future and see what I see. So it's my, it's my vision of the future. Mm-hmm. It's my vision. I mean, I'm not accepting everything. The culture will be different and other things. But um, uh, what I see as the future, I'm kind of relating that to the people, what we're going to, what, what it would be like in the 30th century and uh, what will our relationships be like and how will children behave and those type of things. So, so what, and how, what about think? our lifespan? How will well, I um, think, for example, that uh, we will have lo- much longer lifespans. So children will have grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. So I think we'll have a lot more generational interaction from the longer distance. Uh-huh. Because lifespans, my predictions are, will be about 800 years by the 30th century, 29, 29, for example. That, that and, kind and, of era. And when do you think this is going to be starting? <laughs> well, it's starting right gonna... now. We've increased lifespan quite a bit. Uh, well, but genetic true. manipulation uh, has done for animals, sometimes they've increased lifespan by 10 times, certain insects. So we've made quite a bit of change, and eventually that will come to humans as well. And uh, we haven't done much manipulation on this in humans, but we will. But we do it on animals, insects first, and um, other animals like mice. And uh, we've done some work on mice. Uh, well, yes. Have you? But, are you um, referring to um, the studies about the, where they took uh, blood from younger mice and injected it into older mice and increased their lifespan? Yes. I mean that is is amazing. Yes, it is. I mean, yes. I, I don't know if, if I don't know if you wrote uh, about that in your books, but I mean, I could see where a society where uh, you know that that there could be a lot of well, I guess there could be something where people sell younger people sell their blood to be used to prolong the life of other people, but it brings up all kinds of ethical, moral issues like uh, well, you know. Who, yeah. Go ahead. But if we understand what it is, we're not going to have to use the blood. We just use the chemicals, that some of the chemicals in the blood, and one of them is called NAD, 
it's a long chemical name, but it's NAD. Yeah, yeah. And since that experiment, they've done other experiments where they just take the NAD and put it in, and it yeah. increases the lifespan. Because, yeah, so we now have determined that it's this chemical produced by the younger blood that we can make, manufacture in biotechnology, and then sell it to the people, and they will get maintain their youth for long, long periods of time. But there are other, there's genetic manipulation, there's a number of different things. When you combine them all, I don't think it's out of whack to say we can increase lifespan. You know, we're talking about 900 years. Look what we've done in the last 100, the last 200, 300. In the last 1,000 years, the average lifespan 1,000 years ago was like uh, 30 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, we had a lot of, you know, People dying in childbirth, of course. But, uh, you know, we're now at 84. So uh, I think we will, at least in the United States, Japan is, is uh, I'm sorry, Japan's at 84. In the United States, we're at, um, but I think the males are 78 and the women's are 84. So we're somewhere in between there. Uh, so, But Japan is the longest and Iceland is second. I think we're around fourth um, in um so we're right in there, but basically, it's around 80 years if you average it now between men and women. Um, and um, you know, you know, the basic difference between men and women is, is relatively small. We're talking about a few years, but women are stronger; they live longer. So um, it's not all every time, but on the average. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Now, you have a love so, story as part of your um, book as well. And I, I think I you, do, think I, you have this woman you know, uh, from the 30th century going back to um, 19, or 2015 and um, right. <laughs> talking about how sex is different in, 30, 30, 000, in the 30th century than 2015. Uh, are we more promiscuous or less promiscuous in the 30th century? We're more promiscuous because, first of all, there's no disease. The biggest uh-huh. factor, and, you know, if you go back to Roman times and Greek times before they knew about these diseases, they were very uh, promiscuous. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. They had orgies and other things. In the 30th century, uh, I wouldn't say they're that promiscuous, but... They certainly are more than uh, um, today. Well, certainly, uh, you know, bisexuality is much more accepted and other things. And uh, but yeah, they're they have a much op- more open um, view of marriage and mm-hmm. sexuality in the future. Mm-hmm. Just like if you look at the if you look at back in the in the forties, um, you know. It, lower skirts and all that stuff were common. We didn't really go back far enough. You didn't even show your ankles, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So now we're more open. We have bikinis are pretty much accepted at almost every beach. And they get pretty skimpy some places like Brazil. Uh, and, um, yeah, so we're, we have, we've seen our progress. If the progress continues, yes, we'll be more open, much more open marriages and things like that will be common. So uh, I, that's that's my vision. Doesn't mean it happens. Doesn't mean I'm supporting it. But I see that as happening because what have I seen in my lifetime? You know, I've seen tremendous difference. We're now 
gays can get married, and they couldn't even they had to hide it. Uh, uh-huh. In you know, at least in my in my lifetime, when I was a child, I, you know, I, I you know I never heard of anybody in my class that was gay. If there was somebody there who was gay, they certainly didn't tell anybody. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Um, yeah. So, so where and your I, book has I, already won an award. Um, tell us about that and where we can get the book. Okay, the book is available on Amazon, and. Um, it's going to be. The price was nine ninety nine for the ebook. It's going to be lowered to two ninety nine, I think, next week. Um, starting, uh, I'm sorry, this week already. Yeah, starting this week on Wednesday. Uh, that's tomorrow. Uh, it will be two ninety nine. It's going on a special. What's called holiday sale. Uh-huh. Uh, and. Um, and, and so, so um, that's where a, you want people to And it's on Amazon. Go. Just put in 30th Century, and it, it will pop up below. 30th Century Escape is the name of the book, but the trilogy is named 30th Century. So if you put up 30th Century, it will pop up, and you can just click on it. And, of course, that gets you to the, the first page, and then you can click on it to get to the detail page. You can find out a lot more about me and the book. There are also, I have a website. You can find all the information there, uh, plus the first three chapters are there, so if you're interested. But the award was, was an amazing thing. I was very lucky. Um, we only have about award. a minute to, we only have a minute to go, so, so yeah. kind of tell us about that uh, quickly. Yeah, so the award um, is called uh, the Irwin Award. It's been put out by the book publicist of Southern California, and I'm very indebted to them for picking my book as the best science fiction book of 2017. So uh, that uh, is what I can say about that. I have to thank the people uh, who who selected me, and uh, I I know that uh, there are many great books out there. (laughs) Well, Dr. Mark Kingston-Levin, our time is up, unfortunately, but thank you very much. And also, let me just tell people the the website. uh, And as he said, there are three chapters on the website. You can start reading. The website is www.30thcentury.org. 30thcentury.org. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Levin. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 